Yes. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show offers listeners firsthand insight into starting and running a business, the ups and downs of risk-taking, and the commonalities of successful people. Connect with Carrie through her candid, often funny, and informative weekly blog, where you'll read and can comment on life as wife, mother, daughter, and entrepreneur. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Chris. My guest today is a seventh generation Arkansan and practicing lawyer, Representative Mr. Clark Tucker. He is also the great, 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 great. I think that's enough great. Wow. I know. A lot of great grandsons of Arkansas's 18th governor, James P. Clark, his namesake, who took office in 1894 and later he served as a United States Senator until his death in 1916. Clark is an overachiever, evident by all his involvements, awards, and accomplishments. Just to name a few, because I didn't want to list them all, because I didn't want to bore the audience to death, because it is long. He's the class president of the famous Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. He's a graduate of Harvard, where he studied government and was the student president for the Harvard Kennedy School's Institute of Politics. Magnum Cum Laude, graduate of law from the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, where he served as editor-in-chief of the Arkansas Law Review. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table the hardworking, smart, idealist, Mr. Clark Tucker. Yes, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carrie. I appreciate that. You're welcome. I've known you for a while. Yes, absolutely. And I know your mother. And my father. And your sister. Yeah. Did I... And your grandmother. And my grandmother. And your grandfather. Yeah. I mean, really, I think I almost know your grandmother better than I know you. She's a she's a charming person. She never met a stranger, so if you met her, she tells good jokes. She does. (laughs) She's a great joke teller. Absolutely. I should actually have your grandmother on. She's so entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. So your mother's Becky, and I think it's really interesting. I didn't know that your I did not know that your grandfather was once the governor, and I did not know he was who you were named after. Did your mother have some kind of premonition about you were going to go into politics and become a lawyer? Because he was a lawyer. Right. He went into politics. So the, actually, my name came from the fact my first name is Everett. And my, but that's your dad. So that's my so my dad did not have a middle name. He's Everett Tucker III. My grandfather did not have a middle name, Everett Tucker Jr. And so we, uh, my parents just thought I needed, my granddad went by Everett. My dad goes by Rhett, short for Everett. And everybody thought I needed to have something different to go by. My grandmother, who you know, actually on the other side of the family, she, she likes to take credit for it. She jokes that she told my parents that if they didn't give me a middle name, then she was going to call me IV because that's the Roman numeral for four and Everett Tucker, the four. So she, (laughs) she takes credit for the fact that I got a middle name. And, uh, but that's, that's how Clark came about. And well, and it must have come yeah. from your family. Right. I mean, she yes. picked it right out of your family. Yeah, absolutely. So you were the class president of Central High School. I was. Yeah. So you, were, you played baseball. I played baseball there. Going to Central was an extremely important part of my life. So my sophomore year there was the 40th anniversary of the integration of Central. And that was really the first time that the city of Little Rock embrace the important history that we have here. And I think it's important for us to own our history and and learn from it. And so the fact that I watched that happen and um, to be a little uh, 
self-promoting about it. My dad actually played a critical role in that. And so to watch my dad do that as a teenager and see it happen and then get to see the Little Rock Nine and develop relationships with some of them uh, to the extent that I could and learn from all of them, that was a very important and formative experience for me. You think that's why you decided to go into politics? I certainly think it has a lot to do with it. My I have always thought my parents always taught me that you ha- you have to serve others. And, you know, if we're given a lot, then a lot is expected of us. And you can serve in a lot of different ways, for sure. There are a lot of different ways to be involved in your community and try to make a difference in people's lives. Politics is not the only one, but it certainly is one. But just seeing what they went through and the influential role that elected officials had in that process and what a difference you can make as an elected official certainly inspired me. Well, your whole family's overachiever. Your father is a successful real estate developer in downtown Little Rock. Your sister's a videographer. Your grandfather that I knew, or a cinematographer, I guess. Your grandfather that I knew, Dr. Boast, he, he was from Fort Smith. And yeah. what type of a doctor was he? Was he a baby doctor? He was the pediatrician. Yeah, he yeah. was. Yeah. So he opened a pediatric practice in Fort Smith in 1952. And he was only the third pediatrician in Arkansas. He was the only one between Little Rock and Tulsa from east to west and Springfield to Shreveport, north to south. Hmm. So I guess he wasn't home very much. Yeah, they they made house visits in those days, as you know. And so my mom said they'd be having dinner, phone would ring, and my granddad would be out the door. You know, one, a couple things about his practice that I'm really proud of. One is when he opened his practice in 1952, he only had one waiting room. And not very many doctors only had one, if any, only had one waiting room at the time. They had uh, segregated waiting rooms for people of different races. Oh, I see what you mean. And uh, so he had a waiting room for everybody to wait together. And uh, the fact that he did that and was right on the front end of it in the early 50s is something I'm very proud of. And he also always made sure that people got care. And my grandmother told me a story that one time he had her give blood to a patient that he knew would not be able to make any payment at all. And so that that to me... Your grandmother gave blood to a patient? Yes, that my grandfather knew would not be able to pay. Doctors don't do that anymore. Hey, honey, come down here, will you? I need a little blood transfusion. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's that's a good story. Yeah. You could have done anything. You really could have. You're very smart. Everybody doesn't know that. You're very, very smart. Um, And you could have done anything. And you chose uh, government. So you went to Harvard, to the Kennedy School of Politics. How do you say that exactly? So I I went there for college. And one of the extracurricular activities that I was involved in was at the Kennedy School, which is a grad school. Did you get a scholarship to Harvard? So they don't really give out. Oh, they don't give out scholarships. Yeah, That's yeah. exactly right. I so forgot. You can get other kinds of scholarships. and You're so we, smart. We I was wondering that, how you got up there. I was wondering if they did do some sort of an incentive, but you're right. I forgot that the, those Ivy League schools don't do scholarships. Yeah, so they, they do. Yeah. They, they make sure that you get to go, but they don't give merit-based scholarships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were in government there, and then you decided to come back and become a lawyer, and you went to or get a law degree at the University of Arkansas in right. Fayetteville. Right. Um, how did that come about? So I had a great experience, and I made some great friends in college, and I keep in touch with a lot of them to this day. But to me, Arkansas is home. And I also uh, was dating a young lady who was enrolled in college at the University of Arkansas at the time. 
fortunately I ended up marrying this, this, uh, <laughs> this young woman. So yeah. So, uh, but I, I did Arkansas is home for me. I knew this is where I want to spend my life. And I didn't know necessarily whether I wanted to be a lawyer, but I, I wanted to get that legal education and I had a great opportunity there. Um, and it was close to the, to the woman that I would eventually marry. And so it all, it all worked out. And you were voted in the class of 2006, some of the awards you got. I told you, it's kind of boring listening you, to this. Gonna, Reading you, about you it is blush. a little bit boring. Yeah. It's just like, oh, and then he did that. Oh, and then he did that. You were, in 2006, greatest contribution to the legal literature, best trial advocate, most likely to succeed. Those were some of the things in your graduating class they said about you. Yep. They Can't uh, say uh, anything. B- bad, bad uh, judgment on their part is the only thing I'll say about it. Why were you the editor-in-chief of the Arkansas Law Review? So that's just, it's just something that, you know, in law school, if you have an opportunity to do, then you just do. It's, I had two very unique experiences as part of that process. One was, uh, and those were that I was in charge of some commemorative issues for some people who had passed away. Uh, judge Richard Arnold, who was an Eighth Circuit judge here in Little Rock, passed away just before I became editor-in-chief of the Law Review. And so we had a commemorative issue just for him. He went to law school with uh, Antonin Scalia. And so uh, he also knew Bill Clinton very well. And so both Bill Clinton and Justice Scalia made contributions to that uh, edition of the Law Review that I was in charge of. So that was pretty cool. I got to work with both of them and their staffs on putting that together. And um, that was a, a very... Uh, you know, fulfilling process. And then actually the dean of the law school who had served as dean my first two years at the school, Richard Atkinson, who was a really a mentor to me, uh, a man that I just flat genuinely loved. And uh, he passed away. And so we did a commemorative issue for him. So the law review in general can be a, a very uh, stimulating thing where you... It's not just the, about law. Yeah. It can be also biographies about great people. That's right. Tell That's stories. That's right. What is it about law that you like? Is it the part about oil writing? You are a wonderful public speaker. I first met you, uh, at I saw you at a podium, and I thought, this kid, you were 10 years ago, and I thought, this guy's going to be a, our governor one day. I had no idea that you were politically bent in, at the time, and I don't think you were at the time. But I actually thought when I saw you speak for the first time, I thought, wow, he could be the governor of the state of Arkansas. You were probably 30 years old when I first saw you. Uh-huh. So what is it about being a lawyer that, is that the part that appealed to you was that you fa- that you get to orate? So uh, everyone's supposed to have equal rights under the law. And it's really the same thing about being a lawyer that uh, is public service and politics in general attracts me because you can really make a very important difference in someone's life if you do it the right way. And, you know, Lady Justice is blind and that's the way that it's supposed to be. Unfortunately, that's not always the way it is in reality, but we can make it that way if we do it one person at a time. And that's the way that I've tried to do it. I don't know if Lady Justice is blind. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't seem like that to me. Somebody's got to defend the guy, even if he's guilty. So uh, how do you call that blind? Well, that's that's part of being blind, I think. Oh. Yeah. That's, everyone, everyone deserves due process. And I mean, that's what that means, I think. It would be hard for me to be a lawyer and to know that my client was guilty and I still had to go to court and defend yeah. them. So I, I haven't done a lot of criminal law. In fact, I've done almost none. Um, and uh, so I, I understand that. Uh, part of it, though, I think people need to understand in both civil law and criminal law is that, uh, like, for example, if you have a client that's guilty, it's not that you always go to court and say that he's innocent. It's, oh. Sometimes it's, you know, negotiating a fair deal on behalf of your client with the prosecution to make sure 
that every that justice is administered fairly. Okay, so you graduate from school. You're a lawyer now. You got a lot of credentials, a lot of creds. You've uh, you've been given a lot of awards for your and been semifinalist in national trial competitions. And you go and you get a job as Where'd a Where'd you clerk. get all this information? <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't every one of my guests say all that when they come on. They're like, wow. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so it's real, this, one of my favorite parts about this show is I get to read all about my friends and mm-hmm. stuff. But yeah. um, Judge Leon Holmes, you went to work for him. Yes. Yeah, he's a great judge. You could have probably gone anywhere. Well, I don't know. Uh, but, but to me, I've I, I always wanted to come home. So I spent four years out of state in college and I spent three years in the Northwest part of the state in law school, but Little Rock is where I always knew I wanted to be. I'm just, I'm a, f- a very family oriented and community oriented person. And so for me, uh, you know, this community and my family is part of my DNA. And, and so it's really inconceivable for me to live anywhere else. And I, I'd been to law school and I wanted to get a good job. And, uh, and, and that was that was. And then a you great went to, and then you decided to go into private practice with Quattlebaum Grooms and Tall in Little Rock, specializing in commercial litigation. Do you defend? Do you defend um, companies? Yes, uh, so we do both. Uh, it was prim- you know the practice was primarily commercial disputes, so it could be a contract dispute, for example. So yes, we would defend a company who might have been sued for breach of contract, but mm-hmm. if we represented another business or person who felt as though they were in a contract that someone else had breached, then we might file that Because that seems lawsuit. like a conflict of interest. And by night, you're a represent. I mean, by day, you're defending companies and corporations against the people who are suing them. And then by, by your public service, you're over there working for the people. It seems almost like they don't go together. Well, no, that's not, that's not the case. I mean, we all, we represented all sorts of people in my law practice, mm. but regardless of the practice of law, that never had any effect whatsoever on my public service. All right. This is a great place to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Mr. Clark Tucker. We'll get to know Clark more. We'll talk about his idealisms and ambitions for his life of public service after the break. When flagandbanner.com asks, want to hang out? We're talking about hardware. We're fun to hang out with when you've got the right hardware. And right now, 15% off on things you purchase on flagandbanner.com. Site-wide. Banner brackets, flagpole lights and toppers, solar lights, house brackets, rope and snap hooks, street pole arms and brackets. When we ask, want to hang out? Flagandbanner.com comes ready to make it easy for you to do that. And if it's been a while since you read one of your personal emails from flagandbanner.com, look at the next one closely. We've got a sister site, brand new, ourcornermarket.com. Beautiful address plaques and more. Quality products at reasonable prices, ourcornermarket.com is now part of flagandbanner.com. Sign up for your emails and never miss a sale. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Clark Tucker, Tucker, who just happens to be a seventh generation Arkansan and a Democrat running for Congress in this November election. Before the break, I was talking to Clark about his family. He's a family-oriented guy. I know his whole family. And we were talking about what an overachiever he was in high school. He was class president, student body president. What were you, class president or student body president? Isn't there a difference? I think so. No, I can't remember what it is. Yeah. So class president is, is in charge of the reunions. I was student body president, which was in the student council in school at the time. Oh, he's more serious. I'd be the class president in charge of the keg. But go. anyway, uh, so um, and then we talked about you going to Harvard and then we talked about you going to law school and then we talked about you coming back and clerking for a judge. And then we talked about you going into private practice. And now we're moving up to 
you being running, deciding in 2014 to run for the Arkansas House of Representatives. Why? What happened? Did something happen? Yeah, I had a few screws loose, I think. But, I think so, too. Yeah. I think that about all politicians, yeah. No, I being a lawyer is a, is a perfectly fine way to make a living, but I personally felt unfulfilled. Um, oh. And I, uh, I worked with great people, and by and large, I liked the people that I represented, but... Um, but I still went home every day and felt like there was something missing, like there was something more that I could do for the community here. And so leading up to 2014, I was getting more and more involved with different community organizations here, but it still wasn't quite enough. And that seat opened up. My predecessor, John Edwards, had been term limited for his service in the Arkansas House. So it was an open seat and I just decided to go for it. What is the term limit? At that point in time, it was six years in the House. It actually changed the day I was elected. To what? Uh, it, you can serve up to 16 years in the legislature in some combination between either the House or the Senate. But you could serve, if you serve 16 years in the House, you couldn't serve any in the Senate, but you could do it that way. What is it about government that makes people like it so much? It's very complex. It is very complex. And I don't know that all that many people like it that much. My uh, sister teaches government. Yeah. Well, it's because you can have such a huge impact, I think, on people and our lives and our society. Some of your accomplishments are um, pre-K funding. Right. What'd you do? Yeah, so I think pre-K... First of all, it's just the right thing to do to make sure that every three and four year old child has every opportunity to fulfill all their God given potential. I also think it's the smartest investment that we can make as a society. We actually get the the highest rate of return for pre K dollars that we spend for any other government dollar that's spent. Why? It's because um, if a kid has access to a high quality pre K and they go to kindergarten, then everything that we want to see less of and that is expensive from a government standpoint, like yeah. remedial education, teen pregnancy, drug use, crime rate, violent crime, government dependency in other ways, those all go substantially down if a kid has access to high quality In those few years, it's those years are that critical. Yeah, the earlier the better. I mean, I can give you some some facts that will blow your mind. And, uh, you know, this is one that I heard, and I may get it off slightly, but what I, I heard one day is that, if the human body grew at the same rate as the human brain, then at one month old, a human would weigh 170 pounds. Mm -hmm. And the brain, 85% of cognitive development takes place by the fifth birthday. And we spend 95% of our public education dollars after that fifth birthday. Say that again, 85% of our... Cognitive, so social, emotional, and intellectual development. 85% of our brain development is, is in the first five years of our life? Yes, We've got, we've got them, we're putting them in the bed with a bottle and pulling up the side on the crib and right. leave. That's, right. we've got that backwards. I had no idea. We have to be reading to kids from the day they're born. And if we do that, we change their lives. And pre-K is a critical part of that. Wow. I bet you're proud of that. Um, you also um, talked, uh, protected Arkansas's private option, Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. I don't think people understand about um, how states can receive funding from the federal government about that. Can you explain that to everybody? Sure. Because some states opt for this and some states don't. And yeah. I don't know why every state doesn't opt for it. I don't know why either. I, so every, explain I, it to us and every, explain what I'm talking about. Yeah. So every state should. So traditionally there was Medicaid and that really provided health care for people who uh, 
were well below the poverty level or had some kind of disability. What Medicaid expansion was under the Affordable Care Act is it would provide access to health care if you live up to 138% of the poverty level. That's about $16,000 of income per year for an individual, about $32,000 for a family of four here in Arkansas. And so these are people who almost entirely are working because they have that income coming in, but they didn't make enough to afford health insurance. And there are I have tried to focus on policies that are both the smart thing to do and the right thing to do. And pre-K is a perfect example of that. This is another. So first of all, it's the right thing to do to make sure that these people can go to the doctor and have access to care without going bankrupt. And what was the dollar amount you said they made? The, where was this gap that they fell again in the income? Yeah, so it was, if you're an individual, if you made up to $16,000 a year in Arkansas, then you would were have ineligible for, med- for any kind of help. Yeah, you, you were you were basically fell in a in a hole in the system. You were you made too much to qualify for Medicaid, right? But you didn't make enough to be able to afford it on your own. Exactly. So you just were out of luck. Okay, so so pick up where you left off. I just want to make sure, sure. reiterate that to everybody because yeah. that's a huge gap. Huge. Okay, huge. so go ahead. So you did. So when the Affordable Care Act was passed, it said we're going to provide federal dollars for these people to have access to care and have and, and have health care. So in Arkansas, what we did is, um, it's, but ch- states had a decision to make as to whether they would accept those federal dollars or not. And in the beginning, it was paid for 100% by the federal government. Now it's going to be about 90%, paid for by the federal government and 10% for the state. It's still a great deal for the state to accept those dollars. It's not like if we turn the dollars down, that money's not going to be spent and the deficit's going to go down. That money's going to be spent somewhere else. It's just up to us whether it's going to be spent in Arkansas Why would or not. every state not opt to get that federal supplement? The reason, and not to oversimplify it, but well, do oversimplify, yeah. please. <laughs> I, there, I think there are people who make decisions based on ideology more than they do fact, the facts in front of them and the evidence in front of them. Well, the ideology would be, I don't want my citizens to get federal funding for, I don't understand if that. If the government's too big or whatever the case might be. Oh, you think that they, so you think some state governors and legislator believe that government's too big as it is, and so they refuse to take any supplemental hand, handouts for their citizens. Yeah, and we can talk about this in a whole bunch of different ways. Here's one concrete example. Okay. In Arkansas, we expanded Medicaid. Uh, the surrounding states, uh, Louisiana has now expanded Medicaid. It did it a couple years after Arkansas did. So Louisiana aside, the other five states that border Arkansas are Tennessee, Oklahoma, Missouri, Tennessee, Texas and Mississippi, that's five. Um, they have had a combined 36 hospitals close since the four, in the, this decade, essentially. In Arkansas, we've had zero hospitals close. And the reason is because we expanded Medicaid in the other states, not Louisiana, the only other state that borders Arkansas that expanded Medicaid, they've also had zero hospitals close. So it doesn't matter how great your health insurance is if your local hospital closes. And you know as well as I do that hospitals in the communities in Arkansas, they're a key part of the economic lifeblood. And it's not just hospitals, it's every medical provider. And so um, this is just something, you know, in Arkansas, we used to have $100 million in the budget every year to pay to hospitals for the uncompensated care that they had. And that line item is gone now because hospitals are being paid for the care that they provide because uh, so many more people have access to health insurance and health care. What's going to happen to health care? Well, 
the, uh, if you notice, I didn't say everyone has access to healthcare because that number is still not at zero. In Arkansas, after we expanded Medicaid, we actually led the nation in reducing the percentage of uninsured adults from 21% to about eight to 9%. In my opinion, we have to keep working until that number is zero because every person deserves to have access to quality, affordable healthcare. And then that word affordable is the other part of it. Mm-hmm. Healthcare is still so expensive in this country. And we and have everybody to make, thinks it's insurance companies, but it's really not it's the pharmaceutical companies that are driving the price up. It's a, it's, it's really everything. I mean, you, you can come at it from a, a lot of different ways. Pharmaceutical drugs are way, way too expensive. You're exactly right. That is an essential part of it. No one ever talks about those lobbyists. They all talk about the insurance companies like it's their fault, but it really yeah. more than not, it's, it's the, price of a medicine medicine is way too expensive it's much more expensive in the united states than it is in other countries and by and large these medications are developed here in the united states so it doesn't make sense for that to be the case um do you feel like we're going to lose medicare i mean uh, obamacare nobody thinks that uh, the affordable care act is perfect or I, I haven't met anybody who thinks it's perfect it needs improvement but one of the most important things that it did is it made sure that if you have a pre-existing condition then you cannot be denied a policy. And also, probably even more important than that is you cannot be charged more if you have a pre-existing condition. And we have to keep that in place. That's one of the main reasons Did I Did you always feel that way or was it because you now have a pre-existing condition? Tell our, tell our yeah. uh, listeners you're a cancer survivor. Yeah. So I always felt extremely strongly about that. There's no question about it. But at the same time, there's no two ways about it. Having that experience does change your perspective. To me, pre-K and some of the criminal justice reform is another issue that I worked very hard on the state legislature, you know, making sure that people have good paying jobs. Those issues to me are extremely important. But having gone through cancer myself, uh, health care really to me comes first because it, it impressed upon me that if you're not healthy, then there's really nothing else that matters. Health comes first. Um, if you're not healthy, you can't work and take care of your family. If you're a kid, you can't learn or go to school or develop. But So I had a gentleman that worked for me who um, had health care through his wife who was going to lose her job. And he thought, oh, his daughter got sick. And we, he thought that... Um, he thought it was going to be really bad. It turned out not to be bad, but he was very concerned that she was going to have MS or something. And so he was the person you're talking about. He made over $16,000, I mean, $16,000 a year, way over that, but he didn't make enough to afford health care yeah. for a daughter who had been diagnosed right. and was now going to have a pre-existing uh, condition. Yeah. His wife was going to lose her health care because her job was doing a layoff. He was going to start trying to look for health care for his daughter with a pre-existing condition. He was considering going on welfare and everybody in the house quitting working so that they could get Medicare like you're talking about. Yeah. That doesn't seem right. No, it's it doesn't not. seem like you want to get people to stop working. Right. To afford health care. The only way we can afford health care is to stop working. That's that's exactly right. When we talk about pre-existing conditions, actually one in four children have pre-existing conditions. And really? Then, yes. And then if it's significant enough, they have to base their employment decisions for their entire life on whether they have health care or not. It affects, our, it affects these people's lives the most, but it affects our entire economy. Well, what, yes, that's exactly right. When Obama, Before Obamacare or Affordable Care Act, I had to provide health insurance and it, and every year it was going up and exponentially and it was just about to bankrupt Arkansas flag and banner and I could only afford and so I couldn't get any employees to come to work for me because they there was a lot of people or not any but I couldn't get a lot of people that I might would have hired because they needed health care so bad and they had to go work somewhere that they didn't want to work as much right 
like maybe for the state of Arkansas, they really wanted to work in the private sector, but they couldn't because yeah. of their health. Right. So they had to work for the state or for federal government. And it was kind of a shame that they were not getting to be fulfilled in their career yeah. because they were having to take jobs, yeah. like you said. I mean, if you want to talk about sort of economic freedom in our country. Economic you, freedom, that's a good word. You don't have it right now, number one, because of the healthcare situation, but also because of college debt to college tuition. What's up with that? It's, 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 we, we have to make a real effort to make it more affordable. Again, it obviously affects the young people who graduate with this crippling debt more than ever anyone else, but it does affect all of us. I read within the last year that entrepreneurship in America is at a 25 year low. And that's to me, it's obviously related because you can't, take a risk and start a business. If you know, you have to hit that payment every month. You also can't really go into public service in the way you that you can't would buy like. a house. That's right. That's right. Why is it so expensive? When I went to school uh, or when my husband went to school, you were able to work a part-time job and go to college and pay for your, pay your way through college. Why is it so much so expensive today? Because we even have the lottery that's given money and given scholarships. I don't understand why it's gotten so so expensive. Yeah. Why is it? Well, the, the lottery is a whole nother topic. Um, but why is college so expensive these it, days? It's just, it's, it, it has gotten so much more expensive and it's grown exponentially more than the rate of inflation. That's right. Yeah. And so we have to, we have to do what we can to rein in the costs and to make sure that what you're describing is possible, that people can uh, work their way through college without graduate. Right now, if you graduate from a public school in America, on average, you have $25,000 in debt from a private school. It's about 40,000. And that's just way too much. We also need to work to make sure that that debt can be refinanced in the same way that any other kind of debt can, like you can with your home mortgage or whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. But college debt is the only kind of debt that you can't manage or refinance in any way. And that's also wrong. So I had your father Brett Tucker and your sister, Catherine Tucker, on this radio show in August of 2017. Mm -hmm. And we talked about your father's success as a real estate agent. And your sister was starting the Arkansas Cinema Society. And while I had him on, we had a caller call in and ask your father if you were going to run for governor. How about that? <laughs> How about that? So to that caller, no, he's going to run for Congress. Hmm. I really did think you would run for governor before you ran for Congress. Yeah. All right, when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Clark Tucker. Flagandbanner.com is proud to underwrite Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, where listeners are offered firsthand insight into humanity and commonalities of successful people shared in a conversational interview with Carrie. Along with this radio show, Flagandbanner.com publishes a free biannual magazine called Brave. First published in October 2014, Brave Magazine harnesses the power of storytelling and human empowerment. The Department of Arkansas Heritage recognized Brave Magazine's documentation of American life and microfiches all editions for the Arkansas State Archives. Subscribe to this free periodical by going to flagandbanner.com and selecting magazine. Thank you, Chris. Um, you're listening to Up In Your Business with with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Clark Tucker, who just happens to be the seventh generation Arkansan and a Democrat running for Congress in this November election. Before the break, we talked, we, I was talking to uh, Clark at the beginning, we were talking about how smart he is. And then in the second part of the show, we were talking about how um, service oriented he is and how he, what he's done in the Arkansas House and I just loved some of the stuff that you've done. And I think it's interesting how you've worked across the aisles to create a great um, uh, health care program for Arkansans that really worked. And then you said as a model to everyone 
um, into the whole United States that we set records on. How we we were the shining example of how to do it right. Right. And uh, and then I thought it was really interesting that your brain grows. Eighty five percent of your brain development is between is up to the ages one to five years old, and that pre K is really important. And it's yeah. really important we invest money in pre K. I yes. did not know that. Yeah. So we're up to today, and you're running for Congress. Yes. Why Congress? It's a great question. Yeah. yeah. You don't know the answer probably. He's like, no. I have no idea. And people say to me all the time that you must be crazy, and they're probably at least partly right. Well, I think all of these yeah. politicians yeah. are crazy. And people also say to me, between having had cancer last year, and I should say for the sake of your listeners who don't know, I'm, I am 100% cancer-free today, and that's Congratulations. The, the most important thing. Nice. But between having had cancer last year and having kids who are nine and six, why are you running? And my answer to them is those are the reasons why I am running. Um, my healthcare experience combined with my experience in the legislature, just knowing how important healthcare is to every person. And then um, that really feeds into the other part of what I mentioned. I think we can't, our country is as divided as it's been right now, certainly in my lifetime, probably well beyond that. And it stems from the fact that you have our elected officials celebrate when they're taking healthcare away from people. And you have political ads in our uh, discourse that are uh, fear-mongering and race-baiting and, and that sort of thing. And uh, I want my kids to grow up in the same kind of country that I believe I grew up in and that we want our country to be. Uh, I don't think we can take the future for granted. I think we have to earn it. And you don't do that by sitting at home on the couch. Um, you do it by getting out and fighting for the country th in the way that you want it to be. And so. And I think I think the voters want there to be. Um, um, I think they're tired of the strife. I think they want there to be. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, what am I trying to say? A cross party yeah, collaboration. Collaboration. Yeah. There's no substitute for hard work, but on top of working hard, what I have found is that you actually learn more from people who have a different perspective than you, than if they already have the same perspective. And so I would sit down, obviously with some people on uh, the same side of the aisle as me, but uh, with, with a lot on the other side as well, and figure out what our shared goals were and how we could work together to, to get to that place. And if you do that, then I would always learn something. I would always improve the policy that I was proposing. We would get it done, and it would actually make a difference in the in the lives of the people that we're supposed to represent. That's exactly right. Um, everybody wants wages to be higher, but everybody wants the cheapest price they can get. And everybody complains that wages have not increased, but everybody loves the fact that what used to cost you $300 now costs you $100. Everything is cheaper. I mean, my TV, I cannot believe how cheap my TV is. Yeah. Everything is cheaper. So it's a catch-22. You can't continue to get cheap products and get high wages because what do, what do business owners do when they want to make a sale? They lower the price so that consumers will buy from them. Well, now their profit margin has been way cut. So who's going to get raises? Nobody. So it's a vicious kind of cycle there. How do you, I don't know how to, you fix that. I have no idea how you would fix that. Yeah. It's, it's obviously something that is very complex and we have to have a lot of uh, work from a lot of different angles to put into. But the key to me is just having better paying jobs across the board. And but you better, can't get blood out of a turnip. And, and better careers. But yeah, so now we, we have unfilled jobs in Arkansas right now that people, uh, for example, I, I don't know if this is correct or not, so I probably shouldn't say it, but I, I know that there are electricians, plumbers, welders. There are un, 
uh, underutilized professions. And you don't have to have a college degree to do mm-hmm. it. You can go get a certification at a career and technical school. And th- that ought to be more affordable and accessible to people as well. Mm-hmm. And if you get a certification like that, then you can earn 70 or 90 or $100,000, which is an outstanding living in this state. And so if we if we do a better job of preparing people for higher, better paying jobs, then uh, they'll be able to afford what you know what they need at Arkansas Flag and Banner. And when that boosts Arkansas Flag and Banner's mm-hmm. profits, then you can play, pay your employees more. And mm-hmm. it just circulates around in that way. And which... That, and that way we have an economy where we all get lifted so up. So you together. think education is the answer to getting higher paid jobs? I think that's one of the major keys. Uh, that would be great. But uh, we had a guy on here one time. He owned a trucking company and he can't find truck drivers. There's a shortage of truck drivers. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. You just kind of, yeah, there's a real shortage of truck drivers. Yeah. I don't know. You don't have to have a college degree for that. No, you don't. You just so have why to... don't people go get those jobs? Yeah, we, so we need to do a better job of communicating with people who want jobs and workforce development, workforce training. Right mm-hmm. now, we don't know what all the jobs are going to be 10 years from now. And so it's not just, I'm not talking just about K-12 education. It needs to be continuing education for adults as well. And there are so many different ways to talk about it, which is why I hesitate because I don't even know where to start. Mm-hmm. Another example is clean energy. You know, the, mm, There's uh, a lot of jobs there. And there's so much economic potential in Arkansas specifically for clean energy. And it would have such a positive impact on our environment as well. That is something Something that we need to be promoting right now. I think there are 25,000 jobs in Arkansas for cleaning it for solar and, and other forms are they of field right now. There are 25,000 filled, but there's a potential for a lot more. The way someone put it to me and it, it stuck in my brain is that we live in the Saudi Arabia of the Western hemisphere for solar energy. And because we just, we live in the sunbelt, right? And oh. um, we live in the sunbelt. And so we have tremendous potential for solar energy in this part of the world. And, if and I we, believe there's rebates too. Government rebates. Yeah, there are. There are. Uh, you, and then the, another one you have on your website is uh, safeguarding elections and fighting voter disenfranchised. Right. But man, that's a big yeah, one. That is a huge one. That is a huge one. Uh, you know, then there's a, really two major ways to talk about that. One is just with voter integrity. And we know that Russia interfered with the 2016 election. We need to be doing everything we can to make sure that they're not interfering. Um, I mean, the, the sanctity and the integrity of our uh, democratic process is, I mean, that affects every other public policy issue that we have. Uh, really, and then the other way is it's the same thing because every public policy issue we have is affected by who's in office and who's in office is affected by the the overwhelming role of money in politics. And we have to do something about that as well. Has anyone uh, ever just flat out asked you, why should people vote for you? Yeah, of course. Okay, yeah, why? Every, every day. Oh, really? I, yeah. Oh. I hope that they see in me someone who has their back and will be their advocate. Right now, we have too many people in politics, which uh, you just vote the party line. And to me, no party is right 100% of the time. And so if your loyalty is to your the, the party that you're with, then it's not to the people that you represent. And that's not right. I uh, am in this because I care about people and I want to make a difference in our lives on the issues that actually affect us on a day-to-day basis, like being able to go to the doctor without going bankrupt, having a <laughs> decent paying job, and having great educational opportunities for our kids. And I will work across the aisle in a, an effective way to actually get that done. And my loyalty and priority will, will always be to the people I represent here at home. But, you know, it doesn't take much if you don't vote the party line for people to get mad at you and vote you out of office because it happened to yeah. to Pryor. Yeah. Mark Pryor. Was it Mark Pryor? Mm-hmm. He, he, was a, he, he served Arkansas well and then made yeah. one wrong vote. And, yeah. And Blanche Lincoln. Yeah. 
That's why they vote the party line. Well, you just get voted out of office. To me, my priorities are my conscience and the people that I represent. Those are my standards. It's not the party line. But the people that you represent will sometimes be mad if you don't vote the party line. Yeah, but you have to juggle that all the time. You represent all the people, not just the people in your party. How are you going to get the young people out to vote? Let's talk about disenfranchisement. They won't go out. They will not put their money where their mouth is. I feel a lot of energy out there right now. More so than ever before. But yeah. I felt that there. I felt that before, and they still don't show up. Yeah. Well, you know, the ironic thing is that all of the issues that we're talking about will affect young people more than they will older people. I mean, the the environment and the issues are going to affect people who are twenty more than they will me because they're going to live longer than I am. Um, and Social Security, and Medicare, uh, you know, it's going to be safe for people who are there in the next. 20 years, but we don't know uh, beyond that. And so we actually, we're working on these issues almost more for younger people than we are for anyone else. Obviously everyone's affected and every voter and every person is important. And I, I'm, I'm not saying anything to suggest otherwise, but the reality is that these young people have on average a lot longer to live than the rest of us. And so they have, they have as much or more invested in the system as anyone else as well. I just want to take a second and tell everybody you're listening to up in your business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Clark Tucker And please vote, no matter who you vote for, please vote. That's right. Please get out and vote, everybody. Earlier in today's show, Carrie mentioned how well she knows the Tucker family. I've known you for a while. Yes, absolutely. And I know your mother. And my father. And your sister. Yeah. Did I? And your grandmother. And my grandmother. And your grandfather. Yeah. I mean, really. So before we end the program today, let's introduce you to Clark's father, Rhett, and his sister, Kathy. Rhett is a certified public accountant, has a BS in commerce from Washington and Lee University in Virginia, an MBA from the University of Arkansas. For over three decades, Rhett has been a powerhouse in commercial real estate, brokering deals for both commercial and residential development in Arkansas. You would be hard-pressed not to find his company name, Moses Tucker Real Estate, on any number of construction sites in downtown Little Rock. His economic achievements and revitalization to downtown has won him numerous awards, both professionally and civilly. In addition, I'm excited to have joining us today his lovely daughter, Catherine Tucker. The nut doesn't fall far from the tree, as Catherine has proved to be successful and civic-minded in her own right. She is a high school graduate from the Historic Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, and graduated magna cum laude from the University of Pennsylvania with a BFA in photography. Her resume after college continues to impress by having worked on TV films such as, I was impressed with this, and this is only a few, Bones, Glee, Antiquities, and if that is not enough, you recently signed on as the executive director for the startup Arkansas Cinema Society, whose mission is to build a film community in Arkansas where film lovers can watch films, share ideas, connect with each other, and nurture the new and existing film talent within our state. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table this community-minded powerhouse father-daughter team, Rhett and Catherine Tucker. Thanks, thanks, Carrie. Thank you, good, Carrie. Good to be here. Yeah. So when I read, you're both uh, longtime Arkansans. Tell me about being a fifth-generation Arkansan. Well, you know we love Arkansas. Catherine and I both went out of state to college, but I always wanted to come back and particularly help Little Rock become a, a, a greater city. And so, I mean, my family's been involved. My, my grandfather was in the state legislature. My dad was a, a, on the school board in Little Rock. 
it's just kind of in our DNA to try to, to make the place a better place for people to live. So your f- grandfather was in the legislature. Yes. Uh, my great-grandfather was governor and a U.S. senator. And that was on my mom's side. And my grandfather on my father's side was uh, was in the state legislature. So what was your mother's maiden name? A Williams. And he was the governor? He was the governor? No. My mom's uh, grandfather, grandfather was the governor, James P. Clark, oh. and was U.S. senator around the turn of the century. Wow. You, have they written a history book about your family and how you got here? Did, you come, did they come down the Arkansas River? No history book that I know of, and there are probably a few horse thieves in there, too, that, I, that I'm not telling you about. <laughs> so, Catherine, did you feel any pressure when you were in Central High School and you were going to graduate and you thought, oh, my gosh, I'm a sixth-generation family of these successful people? Did you feel the pressure? Uh, I felt the pressure to get out of here. For a little bit and then come back and sort of bring the the whole hero's journey you go out and learn something new and bring it home to your community and that i felt not necessarily pressure but i felt i just feel an obligation to do that did you always want to be in film uh i wanted to be a photographer but i think part of the reason i've formed the arkansas cinema society with jeff is i think i would have known i wanted to do film if i had been exposed to it earlier and Photography was what I was exposed to, was able to be exposed to here. And so that's what I got into and that's what I went to school for. Um, And then the second I found film, I knew instantly that's what I wanted to do. The first time I went to a film set, I knew that's where I needed to be. What year did you graduate from high school? 96. So in 96, there was not any film opportunities in Little Rock? Um. None that I knew of. Yeah, and and Jeff and I both have commented on Who's that. Who's Jeff? And Jeff Nichols is okay. the co-founder of the Arkansas Cinema Society with me, and he um, was the writer director of Loving and Mud, and he was a year behind me in high school. We were in plays together at Second Presbyterian and the Arkansas Art Center, and so we sort of got into theater, and then I kind of got into photography, and if you combine those two, that's film. Um but I, I just didn't feel any outlet for film when I was living here. And I, I, the opportunities are so much better than they used to be, but we want to make them even better for, for young people. This nonprofit right now is really more about educating youth, exposing the community to filmmakers from outside the state, and giving Arkansan filmmakers a place to screen their films. And a way to meet one another. And you want it to be a statewide. That's why it's called the Arkansas That's Cinema. That's right. You don't want it to just yeah. be the Little Rock. Because there's the Little Rock Film Festival. Right. But that doesn't really... The Little Rock Film Festival had a really nice run for 10 years. But the organizers of it, uh, a couple of years ago, kind of let it go. They were busy elsewhere in their career, and they, they could not continue it. So They needed to make money in their life. Yeah, probably so. And they're, they're, they're doing a great job. So that's, you know, we... A group of people started meeting after the demise of the Little Rock Film Festival to see, you know, how that void could be filled. And it has evolved into the Arkansas Cinema Society, really taking on a different mission entirely from what the Little Rock Film Festival had, largely because of Jeff Nichols' direction and inspiration. Because the Little Rock Film Festival wasn't really about making films. It was about reviewing films, right? It was really just about screening films. Watching them. Yeah, and the the difference between what a a traditional film festival does and what we're doing is there's submissions. For for a traditional festival, 
there's thousands of submissions. There's people watching those films and and uh, accepting them into their to screen at their festival. We are a curated festival, much like Ebert Fest, which is sort of our design. Um, but we're also year round, so we're going to do programming and screenings year round, not just. Well, you got your work cut out. Yeah. For you. Okay, Rhett, you and Jimmy Moses have been a huge part of the success of the revitalization of downtown Little Rock. How in the world did you get the cojones to start this huge project 25 years ago? Easy answer. Many, many, many partners. A whole lot of people have been involved in this from lenders to investors to people who've bought homes to restaurateurs to retailers to city government. Uh, a lot of partners have, have made. But not what, in the beginning. Really? In the beginning, somebody had to go. How did it all begin? Did you go to the city and say. Well, let me take you back. Okay. Uh, most of the 20th century, Little Rock turned its back on the river. When I was growing up in Little Rock in the 50s and 60s, what we had on the river was the uh, county jail and the uh, A. Tenenbaum scrap metal dealer. And then the Chris and Shaver uh, gravel operation. So that was your riverfront. And uh, so uh, actually started talking about a riverfront park in the late 70s and 80s. And then in the early 90s, uh, they put together a long-range planning uh, process for the city. The, the city, the, I guess the city leaders did. but Mayor Daly or somebody? Mayor Daly. There were about 300 people involved on like 12 task forces. To, to look at the city's future. And one of the primary uh, goals to come out of that was to reclaim the riverfront. And so that was kind of the beginning of, of the river market district. And, you know, we had to hire the requisite uh, expert from Philadelphia to come in and tell us, give us some good ideas. And one of the best things he told us was take everything you can find that works and is movable and put it in the same area so that you begin to build some critical mass and, and some synergy. So we had a pretty good farmer's market in the base of the parking deck at 6th and Scott. You had an old uh, history museum in MacArthur Park. And once you'd seen the, the, the sole mummy they had there, you, you know, that was probably about all you needed to go for. So that was moved down into the River Market District, and so now the Museum of Discovery. Where, no, wait, there's a mummy in the, in the river? The, the, no, there was a mummy in the other. I'm sure it's in their archive somewhere. They, they had a mummy. No, I'd like to see that. All right. <laughs> but now Kelly Bass runs the Museum of Discovery, and he's just done a fantastic job with that. We also persuaded Bobby Roberts to move the main branch of the public library into what was the old Phones Brothers Warehouse and is now their flagship and now part of a, a three- or four-building campus down there. So they're a major anchor. About that time, we had a president uh, elected from the state of Arkansas, and he, he had a decision to make about where to put his presidential library. And so uh, Georgetown wanted it, Yale wanted it, Hope wanted it, Hot Springs wanted it, Little Rock wanted it. And we, we told him, President Clinton, you need to come to Little Rock, be part of something bigger. Many of the existing presidential libraries are in either isolated or remote areas that are really not part of anything else. And so President Clinton said, I agree, I, I, want, to, I want to put it in Little Rock. As a result, it's only the second presidential library that's at an interstate exit, and it's the only one that's within walking distance of the city's major hotels and convention center. So 
in November of 1997, he committed to, to put the library down here. And that, that was that was a huge commitment for us. It has spawned a lot of other developments. So when I talk about there being many partners, I'm, I'm telling the truth. All the way from the President of the United States to the Bruno Brothers, a 65-year-old business, been in three or four locations in Little Rock, shut down in, in West Little Rock, and were really just down for about two years. And both Gio and Vinny told me, we cannot go to the grocery store without somebody saying, when are you going to reopen? So they were they were kind of the first ones to jump and, and say, we'll, we'll go on Main Street. And so it takes some other visionary people who buy into the dream, and now they've got a, you can't get in there. You cannot get in it's there. It's like Yogi Berra said, nobody goes there, it's too crowded. There's a little glimpse of the Tucker family on today's Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Rhett, Catherine, and Clark. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Carrie's goal is to help you live the American dream.